An art gallery owner tells one of his artists that he's got some good news and some bad news. The artist asks, well, give me the, the good news first. Well, the man replies, the good news is that a man came in here today asking if the price of your paintings would go up after you died. And when I told him that they would, he bought every single one of your paintings. Elated, the artist asked, well, that's awesome. What could possibly be the bad news? The owner replied, well, evidently, the man was your doctor. <laughs> the good news and the bad news. Well, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ really is the theme of the book of Romans. We're going to be spending a little time in the book of Romans looking at this treasure that has been made available to us in the gospel of Christ, in the good news of Jesus. In some ways this morning, it's going to be an introduction to the book of Romans. We're just getting started. In other ways, I want to really be clear about what this good news is, and so I'm going to camp on that for a little while, all that it encompasses. I've been thinking about this for some time, and you know, it's an incredible subject that's far more encompassing than it first appears. If you would turn to, with me to Romans chapter 1, turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. I'm going to read out of the NIV version. I read every version that I have, and you know what? They're all almost exactly the same, which is pretty cool when you stop and think about it. Everybody pretty much agrees on, on the translation of things here. Romans chapter 1, and we're just going to go to verse 7 this morning. It says this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for, there's this word, the gospel of God, the good news, Okay. The gospel, again, he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Paul's introduction here to this letter that he's written to the church at Rome is really pretty typical and pretty similar of the way he introduces himself throughout the New Testament and all the epistles that he wrote. Basically, he's saying, hi, I'm Paul. I'm an apostle. But in this letter to the church at Rome, he seems to be anxious to jump into what he wants to talk about. Because as soon as he says that, he jumps into this, I can't wait to tell you about the good news of Jesus. I can't wait to share with you the gospel that has been given to me to declare. His purpose, I think, is really clear, and we're going to see that it carries through the entire book of Romans. He wants them to know, he wants them to understand what the good news is for which he has been set aside to preach. The good news of the gospel, the very core of the word of God, the reason we have the word of God was to proclaim the good news. That's Paul's focus. That's going to be our focus today. But before we jump into this, let's just stop a minute and we're going to pray because I want God to superintend everything that happens this morning. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, your grace is amazing. The fact that we have your grace really is an outward flow of the fact that, Jesus, you came to give us good news. 
And man, do we need good news. The kind of good news that doesn't go away. The kind of good news that doesn't have a momentary impact, but it lasts forever. Open our eyes. Open our hearts. Help us to see. Help us to understand. Help us to grab onto this good news and let it change us from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, in our world, much like the story I told about the artist, good news always seems to be attached to, well, bad news, right? Well, I've got good news for you and bad news. Which do you want to hear first? You know, that's, that's kind of the way they seem to go hand in hand. And unfortunately, there seems to be a carryover into the church of that kind of thinking. It's, it's subtle, but it's there just the same. Too many believers approach the blessing of the good news or the gospel of Jesus Christ with a good news, kind of bad news attitude or view. The good news is that through Jesus, we have eternal life. The bad news is that we have to live through hell on earth before we get there. And that's their mentality. That's their thinking. At the center of the life of a believer, for them, is just a person who has to persevere through hardship with occasional relief, struggle through life with just intermittent rest, Defeat is a hallmark, well, with momentary small victories. And failure is what they know, even if they have limited successes. Joy is fleeting. Peace is short-lived. Rest is brief. And hope is so hard to hold on to. I believe that mentality exists due, at least in part, to a lack of understanding the full gospel, the full good news that the Bible teaches. We have limited the good news, the gospel of Christ, to the subject of one thing. All too often, we treat it as though it's just about salvation. Folks, it is so much more than just eternal life as great as eternal life is. And please understand when I say that, eternal life is amazing, okay? If that was all we were afforded in the good news, the good news would still be incredible news. It would still be amazing. But the good news is that that's not all it's about. It is, it's so much more. Eternal life is amazing. It is far beyond anything that we will ever think or imagine. It goes so far beyond what can even be put into the wor in words, I can't even approach the explanation of the blessing that we have afforded to us by the cross of Christ. It's mind-blowing to even think about. I, I would struggle to even try to put it into words. There is this future aspect to eternal life that we call heaven, and it is beyond imagining. But listen, and, 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 and hear this well. This is the deal. As great as eternal life is, it is not just in your future. It is not just a future hope. It is supposed to be a present reality. In other words, if you're saved today, you're already living in your eternal life because you will not die. Physical life will pass but you've been promised eternal life. 
you're already living the good news. Which, you know, if you just consider that, if that's all you got out of this morning, that you're already living the good news, it ought to change your entire viewpoint. It ought to change your life. It ought to bring incredible peace and joy and rest because it's just that good. Consider what Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 says. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works so that anyone could boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared for us in advance to do. Did you catch what happened in the middle of that? passage. I mean, it's an incredible passage, and, and one day I'll get to Ephesians, and, and we'll, we'll explore it more. But smack dab in the middle of that, it says that you are already seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Your eternity has already begun. If you're in Christ, you're living your eternity right here and right now. And not just that, because it says right after that, the reason that you're seated in heavenly places. In order that in the coming ages, which Paul is talking about all time, not eternity, but all time, our time, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. In other words, God wants to lavish his kindness on us in Christ Jesus in this time. You are seated in heavenly places. Your eternity has already begun, and the blessing of God is already on your life. Now, I'm not saying it's always going to feel that way. Sometimes we make choices, and it feels different. Sometimes people, other people make choices about your life, and it doesn't feel good. That'll happen, because we live in a fallen world, folks. But God has still poured out his blessings and riches on you so that when that happens, you can come to him and find peace and joy and rest, even in the midst of what hurts. Amen. There is more, so much more, to look forward to than just heaven, as great as that is. It's not all a future hope, folks. It's for now, too to begin to understand the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is to understand that it is a present reality, not just a future hope. Did you know that Jesus didn't talk all that much about heaven or the promises that heaven holds for us? He really didn't. Search the words of Jesus through the gospels, and you'll find that most of the time he refers to heaven as only that which is the dwelling place of God and of angels. In fact, Jesus really only connects heaven to us in a single promise that he makes in John chapter 14, verse 2. He says, in my Father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, I would have told you, 
I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. That's about the extent of what Jesus says about our connection to that future hope. He spoke those words near the end of his earthly ministry in order, I believe, to plant hope into our hearts. Most of the time that Jesus talked about life He talked about it in the here and now, not in the future. He seemed to be more concerned about what is available to us now than what our future life will hold. That tells me Jesus is far more concerned with my life now than what it will be like later. And when you stop and think about it, that makes perfect sense. When we enter into heaven, folks, into his eternal manifest presence, we will be beyond the touch of the enemy, won't we? He doesn't get to exist there. Our hope will no longer be a hope. It will be realized. It will be reality. Until that time, until we get there, we have to live in a broken world. That is this present reality. But we don't live here without hope. And we don't live here without his presence. I do believe that now, This life is the time for good news. We're not going to need it when we get to heaven, right? So the good news of Jesus Christ is about this life, not just about eternal life. Now is the time that the gospel is required. So what is the full gospel? What is the present good news? Well, first, the gospel references the words good news. Okay, they mean the same thing. And that is the message that Jesus brought to people. It's his idea. Even Jesus used it in that way. In Luke chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus' self-proclaimed mission in this world is this. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, at first glance, it doesn't look like he's defining what it really means, what really is the good news, but in reality, he is. You kind of have to look at what the original language means. The Greek word here, when he says, he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, the original language is this. The word is proktos. It means to crouch as in a beggar who cringes away. That's literally what it means. Now, because it's a beggar, it gets translated into the words, preach the good news to the poor. But that's not the actual meaning of the word. Jesus is talking about the state of the common people. He's talking about people subject to a world that beats them down. They cringe. Get that? That's the picture he's creating here. He's not talking just about people who are poor in a monetary sense, not at all. He's talking about all people who suffer the ravages of a broken world, trapped in sin, separated from a true relationship with a loving Heavenly Father. To these people, he has come to proclaim freedom, recovery, release, and favor. That's what he's saying. That's his mission. That is, in a nutshell, the good news. Does it result in eternal life? Eventually it does. 
but it's for now. The good news is for now. It's not about that time. It's about the nasty here and now, not the sweet by and by. It's about eternal life? Yes. But it's also about the promise of life and life more abundant right now. That's how Jesus defines the good news. It's very simple, and, it, and it's right there in the passage. That is what Paul is so anxious to share with the church at Rome that he just can't wait to get into it. I want to just share just a few things briefly about those first six, seven verses, okay? To kind of give you an idea why Paul is so excited about this good news. The first thing I see here is that Paul wants to state and confirm that the gospel he's talking about comes from God. This is not Paul's idea. This is something that God set up. Verse 1 says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the good news of God. The good news comes from God. It originates with God. It's not man's invention. It was revealed and it was entrusted to even the prophets. There's something that God announced and accomplished on his own. We didn't do anything about it. He set it in motion. He determined what it was supposed to look like. Paul backs up this thought by pointing out the fact that the good news was spoken in the Old Testament. So it was, a, it was around long before Paul was. It didn't begin with Paul or the other apostles because it predates them. Verse 2, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The prophecies of a Messiah, a Savior, are painted all over the Old Testament, folks. It is also God's gospel because the subject is Jesus. That's what he says in verse 3. Look at verse 3. Regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus is the focal point, the center, if you will, of the greatest news ever spoken. Another way to say it would be to say that the good news is all about Jesus and who he is for us. John Calvin wrote that the whole gospel is contained in Christ, Therefore, to move even a step from Christ means to withdraw oneself from the good news. Isn't that interesting? Folks, you cannot have the gospel without Jesus. John R. Stott said, the person and work of Christ are the rock upon which the Christian religion is built. If he is not who he said he was, and if he did not do what he said he had come to do, the foundation is undermined and the whole superstructure will collapse Take Christ from Christianity and you disembowel it. There is practically nothing left. Christ is the center of Christianity. All else is circumference. This is why Paul is so careful in describing who Jesus is in these verses. He references Jesus' family tree, his earthly family tree. He is a descendant of David. But then he goes on to say also that it's proven that Jesus is also the very Son of God by the fact of his resurrection. Paul makes sure everybody knows, everybody understands who he's talking about. It's about being very, very clear. The second thing I see in, in, in Paul's words is that this gospel is very clearly for everybody. 
It is a universal gospel. Look at verse 5. Through him and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. There's a message for everybody. The good news is for everybody. There's nobody excluded here. The gospel is for all nations. Now, the Greek word for Gentiles here actually means nations. It means peoples. What Paul is affirming is that the gospel is for everybody, and its scope is stunningly universal. He defines the scope of the gospel as all of the Gentiles, right? This seems to imply, at least in part, that the Christians in Rome are probably predominantly Gentile, not Jew. Now, they're obviously Jews in the congregation he's writing to, because he'll get to that later when he talks about the differences between the Jews and the Gentiles. In fact, he'll get to it in chapter one. We'll get to it pretty quickly. The power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, for first the Jew and then for the Gentile. So it was a mixed congregation he was writing to, but it certainly would appear, at least by his words and his focus on the Gentiles, that it was probably a predominantly Gentile congregation. And that makes sense. You know, he's talking about Rome. Rome is quite a trip from Judea. It's quite a trip from the Holy Land. And so it only stands to reason that they're mostly Gentiles. But Paul is being really clear here. He's not leaving anybody out. The call is universal, and the purpose of the gospel is universal. The immediate purpose of the gospel, I think, is pretty clear in the passage. It is a gospel of obedience, not blind obedience, not obedience for the sake of rules, keeping, but it's those obedience that is founded in faith. It is an obedience that's founded in relationship. Some people object to the gospel of obedience. The gospel is all grace, they say. I think they're wrong. The gospel is not an invitation to a lack of obedience. Just because the good news of Jesus is that we can be saved from our sins doesn't mean we get to keep on sinning. Paul makes that very clear. We're going to get to that in chapter 5 and 6 of Romans. The gospel is supposed to produce obedience that comes from the faith that we place in the person of the gospel. And it also goes hand in hand with the relationship that develops with the person of the gospel. Obedience is at the very heart of our relationship with Jesus. Jesus made it that way because he attached obedience to our love for him. For the good news gospel to be applied to our lives requires literally that kind of response from us. The good news originated with God and it was demonstrated by Jesus, but we are responsible to respond to it. That response is obedience and it's obedience that is rooted in a love relationship, a love relationship that brings glory to God. Verse five says, through him and for his name's sake, we're talking about the glory of God. Our lives were designed for his glory and we find our ultimate fulfillment in doing that which we were created to do. You know, the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is this, what is the chief end of man? The answer is very succinct. Man's chief end, the reason you're here, your purpose in life is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, I love what John Piper does with that catechism because he rewards it just slightly. He says, man's chief end is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And I think that's pretty accurate. A love relationship with God that brings 
God glory is one in which we enjoy God. We seek him out because we like being with him. We obey him because we want to please him. The good news is just this. God loves us. He stopped at nothing to prove that, even to the point of a cross, to provide us the opportunity to connect with him, that we might experience both eternity with him and an abundant life in him. Did you get that? Both eternity with him and an abundant life in him. Just as Paul is very clear about Jesus and his gospel, I want to close today with a clarification of my own. As you may come to hear in the coming weeks, I was accused this last week of preaching and teaching a gospel of demons, specifically a gospel of self-help, a me-centered prosperity gospel, a gospel that seeks to profit in monetary terms from my relationship with God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have to be honest with you at this point. If that was my goal, I'm really bad at it. Supposedly, I preach a message that is focused on the abundant life, which is defined, at least in this person's thoughts, solely in the terms of money instead of the crucified life that's spoken of in Scripture. Now, please understand, I really don't feel any desire or need to defend myself from this. I bring this up for one reason and one reason only. If I have been unclear in any way in my communication, I want to be very very clear, just like Paul, right now. The gospel I preach, the gospel I believe, and the one that I live is about an abundant life that is founded in your relationship with Jesus and nothing else. The gospel of Christ is first and foremost about a loving, kind, merciful Heavenly Father, who sent his Son to love us. Eternal life, our salvation, if you will, it is a demonstration of just that, of his kindness, his mercy, and his love. Salvation is not the end game. It's simply the proof of his love. It is the demonstration of his character that he is love. This demonstration is meant to be experienced in this life as well as the life to come. That is why Jesus promised us an abundant life in the first place. So yes, I preach an abundant life because it's promised and God said it. And if he said it, I believe it. Now I might not always experience it. I'm fully capable of giving away my mind and sometimes my heart to the enemy's plan. But it is what I believe, and it is what I strive to live. The abundant life is living this life in the truth of who God is, a loving father, a sacrificial son, an ever-present spirit, who desires to be something amazing for us, way beyond our thinking or imagining. The abundant life is not about not about, not about wealth, power, influence, comfort. 
Pay attention to that, okay? Comfort. It's not about prestige or any other worldly thing that can be added to your life, except, and get this, please understand this clearly, that any of those things, wealth, power, influence, comfort, prestige, any of those things, are experienced in your life for the purpose of bringing glory and honor to God. In other words, it is not a sin to be wealthy. It is not a sin to have influence. It is not a sin to be comfortable. We should be. We should be in rest. But those things are given to us to bring glory to God. They're not just for our comfort. They're certainly not to feed our greed. The pursuit of any of those things, folks, is dangerous and potentially destructive to our walk of faith if you pursue or possess them for the wrong motives. The abundant life I find in the Word of God is about joy, it is about peace, it is about happiness, rest, contentment, strength, confidence, love, and faith experienced in the context of our relationship with God and with one another. These are what make a man blessed and prosperous in life. That's the abundant life. The riches of the abundant life are only found in intimacy with God. They are not dependent on our circumstances, our worldly conditions. They are about our relationship with God and with others. Did Jesus talk about money? Yeah, more than any other subject, actually. But the abundant life is not about wealth. Otherwise, only the rich would be joyful, peaceful, happy, all those things, right? We actually know for sure that that's not the case, right? It's not because it's not about that. Do I believe in declaring the goodness of God over my life? You better believe it. He asks us to taste and to see that he is good. He even asks us to test him in his goodness that we would find him faithful. I believe in his promises. I preached through enough of them, didn't I? I believe in his promises because he made them and he is good to his word. I also believe that in order to realize those promises, we need to meet the conditions he put forth for those promises. And I think when I preached through them, I was pretty clear about that. In other words, if you want an abundant life, then you need to lay down your life for Christ. That's what Janet was talking about. If you hold back anything, you keep yourself back from realizing the full potential of his abundance in your life. For example, if, if, if I hold back forgiveness, I forfeit the peace that passes understanding, don't I? I can't have it both ways. In the same way, if adverse circumstances in this life can remove you from peace, then your peace is rooted in the world and not in your relationship with God. Chew on that one for a while. Especially when you're tempted to worry, right? Please understand this. You have a say in and are ultimately responsible for your experience of the abundant life in so much as you can choose to cooperate with God or not. Got that? If you're not experiencing an abundant life, if you're not living in joy and peace and rest 
and I'm not talking about your bank account, if you're not living in those things, then it's probably because you're choosing something else. God is good, folks. He is good, and he stands ready to bless his people. He wants you to have an abundant life. He wants you to walk in love, in peace, in rest, and joy. And he will not keep it from you. Only you can do that. Does that not mean that the abundant life is a me-centered life? No. Because we don't create abundance. We're offered it by God and God alone. We experience it by submitting to his will for our life and pursuing him, not the blessings of his hands, pursuing him, pursuing his heart. And by the way, as long as I'm on this subject, you cannot manipulate the abundant life out of God's hands. Can't do it. Can't. You can't give enough to get enough. Does that make sense? Okay, and if you're giving to get, not going to work. If your motives, your heart, your actions are wrong, it won't happen. For example, peace is not given so I can live comfortably in my sin. Okay? Not going to happen. I hope all that's clear. If I missed anything, if you have any questions, feel free to talk to me. There's so much more that I could say. I just don't want to go that far this morning. I'm excited about studying the book of Romans because it is about the gospel. It is about the good news. And it is an incredible promise from God. And it is not just for our eternity. It is for our life. It is for the abundant life that Jesus promised us that we have right now. Now, if that makes me a preacher of prosperity, so be it. As long as you understand that I am not talking about money. I'm talking about the things that the world cannot take away, that thieves cannot break in and steal, that will not rust, will not be destroyed. I'm talking about the things that connect us to the heart of God because that is abundance. That is prosperity. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're just downright good. There's just no way around it. You're incredible. Jesus, what you did for us is amazing. It goes beyond even imagining. And what's so cool is you didn't leave it as a future hope. You made it an available reality for us now. You mean for us to be connected with you in such a way that we experience an incredible, abundant life here and now. An abundant life that the world cannot touch, cannot take away from us. And I, wanna, I, I just want to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' precious name. Amen.